You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Last time, we just got our feet wet, dipped our toes into the issue of figures of speech. Maybe someday we can study this in a Sunday school class and do the whole enchilada, the whole nine yards. (laughs) Where'd the whole nine yards come from? Anybody know? Where? World War II, 50 caliber machine gun belts that they loaded into the wings of the aircraft were 27 feet long. And if the pilots came back, the armors would open those boxes up and they'd say, he shot the whole nine yards, or didn't. But that's where it came from, World War II, 27 foot long, 50 caliber belts and machine guns. So it became a, I don't know about the whole enchilada, I'm, I'm not sure about that one, but uh, figures of speech come into our language in a variety of ways. Any questions or thoughts you might have on uh, what we talked about last time? We had about 28 categories, and I was reviewing back through, I mentioned uh, E.W. Bullinger last last time, I think, and the massive book that he wrote at the end of the 19th century. Uh, he's got over 200-plus categories. I mean, it is just a, an exhaustive work, and probably one of the reasons why it's still in print and still being used as the kind of the go-to source if you're really going to get into uh, studying all the figures of speech in the Bible. It's it's quite a work. And E.W. Bullinger, interesting man too. By the way, he is a descendant of, I think his name was Johann Bullinger, uh, post-Reformation, one of the earlier develop, developers of uh, systematizers of uh, covenant theology. Bullinger, Witsius, Coxeus, that group of people. He is a, a descendant of him. And his name was E.W. He went by E.W. His middle name was William. Um, and I think he probably went by E.W. because his first name was Ethelbert. I don't know if that's the history of it, but... Uh, probably got beat up a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Had to fight a lot as a kid. Okay, figures of speech. Just a quick review here to kind of go over what we talked about. Um, what do they do? They add color. It's one of the features that, that is in figures of speech. And they also attract attention for the person who hears it. And remember, these, these were people learning primarily by hearing. They didn't have their own copy of Scripture for the most part, I'm sure. Um, it would have been a massive thing to haul around anyway, big scrolls, you know. So, but they had, to, they had to learn by hearing the Word of God. And so these things help them to uh, do that. Figures of speech also abbreviate, which helps also with the learning, because they're word pictures, and the word pictures are also more portable, uh, makes the abstract more concrete and therefore more portable. And also they aid in retention, very important when you're talking about the Word of God and trying to learn the Word of God. And having that aid in retention would have encouraged reflection as well. Because the Bible talks about the Psalm 1, you know, the righteous man meditating on the Word in God day and night. So the figures of speech would have helped people do that. And 
we've talked primarily in terms of figures of speech concerning uh, believers, you know, and then the Old Testament saints. But uh, there was another group of people that heard figures of speech. Uh, so who were these for? Well, it was for whoever heard the Word of God, like these guys right here. In Matthew chapter 23, uh, you might turn there for just a minute. Matthew 23, Jesus confronts the scribes and Pharisees. And Matthew's gospel, by the time we get to chapter 23, and we talked a little bit about narrative and one of the definitions of narrative, and so now we can sort of start to put some things together, the pieces together. Narrative, you remember that chart in, uh, in your reading? It, there's, there's a period of time where it, there's an uphill crescendo of some sort of a, uh, a build-up to something, and then there's a, a crisis point where that comes to an end. Well, Matthew's Gospel is well known for this, as Jesus began his ministry and his public ministry, the developing resentment and uh, anger of the, the Pharisees and the scribes and also the Herodians. And by the time you get to chapter 12 in Matthew's Gospel, it is at a fever pitch. And they are absolutely trying to get rid of him. And that's the point in time where uh, he, he basically pronounced a cursing on them and the judgment of God on that generation of people. And then chapter 13 of Matthew, he begins to speak in parables. We're going to talk about parables next time. And parables, very fascinating how it does two basic things. A parable conceals the truth from unbelief, but it reveals the truth to belief. And Jesus would then have to explain the parables to his um, to his disciples so they would understand. But a parable does both those things, capable of doing both those things. But in part, here's what Jesus said to these guys. Now watch the figures of speech in this. Now this is just part of that chapter. It goes, it, it extends from verse 1 all the way down through verse 36. But it starts out, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do, for they preach but do not practice. In other words, if they read the Scriptures to you, and they teach and preach from the Scriptures, do that. But don't use them for examples. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Now, I just selected uh, part of this passage, Look at the figures of speech that he uses here. It's very interesting. See if you can recognize them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. In this way, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Then it even goes on beyond that. What do you see there? What do you... uh, what do you spot as far as what we talked about figures of speech? How about that uh, hypocrites? The first part of that word will give you a little clue. Hypo. Likeness implied by direct naming. Hypocatastasis. Sounds like a disease, but he does that multiple times in there. And for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, uh, these things you should have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides. There's a figure of speech. And I'm not sure about straining the gnat and the camel. I wonder if that might be a Hebrew idiom of some kind. You familiar with that? I'm sure they. I'm sure that they were familiar with that particular, but I can't recall where I, where I heard that. And again, the how about repetition? Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Blind guides, in that passage, he calls them blind guides multiple times. Uh, hypocrites multiple times. You are like whitewashed tombs. Recognize that one? What is it? Simile, yeah. Um, and then the very interesting one, you um, you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Wouldn't you expect them to say they are full of dirt or dust? How about attributing a human characteristic to an inanimate object? That's a figure of speech. Okay? And... Um, one of the things that's going on here, there's a, if you just sort of stand back and look at it, there's a very basic dichotomy going on. It's, it's the difference between external religious ritual and internal spiritual reality. You see that all through here. Externals versus internal spiritual reality. And the same thing is true today. It's a good question to ask somebody if they say, well, I go to church or I'm religious or whatever. I mean, just, well, let me ask you this, you know. Is it an external thing you do? Because I go to church, or I do this, or I do that. What about the internal spiritual reality? And that still, to this day, is is a major dividing line. But uh, figures of speech all through this. Um, and they say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Hebraic thought if you are described as the son of something or someone, you are like your father. Okay, And what I find kind of fascinating too, he says this to the crowds and to his disciples. You know who would have been standing with an earshot of this? Judas. Who, it's a couple chapters later where it actually talks about him going to the these guys and um, say, what would you give me if I turn him in, you know? But uh, you know he probably was plotting this at this point in time. So when he says, um, 
the cups are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Judas, remember, was carrier of the money bag. And he was also known for pilfering from the money bag. I wonder if Jesus looked at him when he said that. You know? Uh, make that connection. Why? wonder why he carried the money bag. Well, part of it was the uh, Jews were required to pay the Roman tax for the Roman coin with the image of Caesar on it. And they hated that. I mean, they would have had to carry an idol around to pay that tax. But apparently it didn't bother Judas to do that, carry the money bag. Well, he was wanting to rob it and pilfer from it. So it's it's almost as if he's he's collecting him up with the same group of people as he speaks to these guys. You serpents, hypocatastasis, you brood of vipers, to call a Jewish person a snake, okay, they'd have made the connection. Um, okay, so figures of speech. This is a quote that's in uh, your reading. <clears throat> Behind every figure of speech is a literal meaning, and by means of the historical grammatical exegesis of the text, these literal meanings are to be sought out. You think these guys got the literal meaning of those figures of speech? I think they got it loud and clear, right? And uh, Jesus uh, just uh, very publicly called them out for their, for their sins. Okay, any thoughts or questions you might have or any other observations you guys have made through that? It's a big uh, area of study. Like I say, we, we, I think about 28 or 29, we went through, and um, there's hundreds of them in Scripture of all different kinds and categories. Okay, well, what about some questions on page 32? Though a writer, speaker, uses a figure of speech, he always intends a literal meaning. True. Figures of speech in Scripture help me memorize the Word of God. True. Drawing the author's meaning out from the text is called exegesis. True. Jesus said, I am the door. In John 10, 7, so the scars on his resurrected body probably include three down one side of his body from the hinges and two circles on his abdomen from the lock set in the deadbolt and a small one on his forehead for the peephole. <laughs> True. <laughs> so that is a metaphor. Okay. Obviously, we understand that, understand that as a figure of speech. Um, metaphors. Uh, the I am sayings of Jesus are metaphors. I am the living water. I am the bread of life. I am all those are metaphors. Uh, very graphic, easy to remember. Um, I am the door of the sheepfold. You know, those people would have understood exactly what he was talking about and what it meant. Christ's words in Revelation 1.17, I am the first and the last are a merism. True. Yep. Bookends where you mention the first part of something and the last part of something, but you're including everything in between. All right. Here we are, back to hypocatastasis. He used a lot of those. Hypocatastasis is best understood as an understatement. A rash in high school from unlaundered gym clothes. Calling a name. Sure, calling a name. Don't ask me where I got that middle one, okay? Still a bad memory. Number three. A biblical reference to circumcised hearts taken literally creates an absurdity. So I should recognize it as a figure of speech. 
That would be the observation. And the meaning as a, what do you think? I had to struggle a little bit with this one myself. Because that reference to the the human heart, clearly it's not talking about the physical heart. And yet, the heart is used to represent the immaterial man, but also man himself. You can find all these references in Scripture. Jeremiah's statement, the heart of man is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things, right? So, a representative part for the whole would be what? Synecdoche. But it's also, I'm, it's, I think it's also a metaphor. So it seems like it's almost a combination of things. There is, by the way, a pretty good statement on page 88, at the bottom of page 88 in your notes to uh, go back and look at. But three times in the New Testament, Romans 2, 25 through 29, Philippians 3, 3, that's the one where Paul says, we are the true circumcision, we believers. It's a circumcision made without hands. Again, this issue of external or external and physical or internal spiritual reality is, is part of that picture. And then Colossians 2, 11 and 12. Also, there are several references too in the in the uh, in the Old Testament, but listen to um, there's another reference to to this in Acts chapter seven. Peter's or I'm sorry, uh, Stephen's lengthy sermon to the Sanhedrin, which he ends once he has their attention, reciting their Jewish history, which they really liked to hear their history. But he gets right down to the end in verse 51 and says, You stiff-necked people, figure speech, refusal to bow your head, you were stiff-necked. Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Wow. Once again, there's figures of speech used in the indictment of these people. And um, one of the things the Jews were known for was murdering their own prophets. Remember, Jesus had three offices. Has prophet, priest, and king. First time he came, as prophet. Prophet tells people what God says, right? Tells people what God says. And they did to him what they did to the prophets in their history. They murdered him. Right now, he's serving as priest. He's standing. Hebrews tells us, right? Ever lives to make intercession for the saints. He comes back. He's coming back as king. And the, one, of the, one of the prerogatives of the king is to judge. And he'll come back as a judge. So, there are some usages of figures of speech. And... Um, powerful word pictures that people should should get. Okay, how about a little art to go with your science? Did you read Psalm 91? Did you read it as a, as a scientist exegeting the text, kind of, or did you just read it for a blessing? That was the intention of having you read that. What are your impressions? Does, does having some interpretive tips maybe help you 
take something like that to heart. That was the whole intention of it. That is really, as far as, in my opinion, the authorial intent to the Word of God. We, we not only read it to understand it, to, you know, to uh, teach it and preach it, and uh, maybe even win arguments once in a while, but we also should read it to be blessed by it and be ministered in our own hearts with the Word of God. Okay? Anything else? Any other thoughts you guys might have? In other words, I believe we're supposed to enjoy the Word of God as we study it, read it, teach it, and so on. Okay. How about types and symbols? Types and symbols. The gap of types and symbols. And we can do the same approach with this part of the Word of God as we have done with everything else. We just simply apply the literal method and... um, one of the points that uh, we need to understand, hopefully we will, is that we can be consistent in this. There's no genre override as far as bumping up against a particular kind of genre in Scripture or coming up against a theological issue. Um, I shouldn't have to adjust my interpretive principles when that happens. If that happens and you find yourself doing that, that's a tell. Okay, that's a tell. Or you hear somebody else doing it. Oh, well, we can't understand prophecy literally. Oh, no, we have to, we have to understand that in an allegorical way or in a, we have to spiritualize it. Okay, that's a real tell. Consistency is important. And we should be able to take, if we get our methodology for interpreting the, the text of Scripture from Scripture, we should understand that that's con- that should be consistent all the way through cover to cover. Okay? Simon? Sure. As long as you don't take it too far, we're going to be talking about that as far as um, as far as types and symbols. That's one of the what's one of the interpretive rules that when you see something that's an illustration or a type or a symbol, you don't try to extract out of it more than what's there. Usually, basically a single single purpose, a single impression. So, um, you know, you can probably think of things that people handling snakes and things like that oftentimes doesn't go real well if they think they can apply it to their life. But uh, I would say, yeah. I mean, that, you know, Genesis Genesis 3.15, I mean, it extends right straight through Scripture, right all the way through. Uh, and that's that's part of the point of seeing the coherence of Scripture. It's a single story by a single author. And so you're going you're gonna to see these connections, and uh, we should see those connections all the way through. So, Okay. So, the literal method and types. Um, first thing we want to do is observe a type. And the word tupas is one of the words that's used. And Dr. Zuck does a really good word study. It's very comprehensive. He shows you the, the usage of that word tupas in, in the New Testament, but also a lot of the related words that are around it. And kind of comes to the conclusion, I think it's it's a good one, that you can't use that word as a technical term. It's it's got too broad of a of a of a semantic range to be used as a as a technical term. So you have to be really careful with it because sometimes it's used as uh, uh, like an example. Like Paul tells both Timothy and Titus in their ministries, prove to be an example, prove prove yourself as an example to other people, and it has that same concept of a of a of a type or a picture, but it's also used. Uh, you know, Thomas mentions that unless I see the imprints in his hand, those marks, 
Um, that that's part of that concept as well. So it basically has the idea of an impression left behind from a blow or a stamp, like when they would stamp out coins, that type of thing. Uh, the New Testament writers use it to designate a pattern, a model, or an example. So you can see it. It you have to be careful in using it as a technical term. And if you do that, you might be in danger of reading too much into what a type is. So that's kind of the basic concept behind it. And then um, I think uh, Dr. Campbell's statement is good. A type is an Old Testament institution, event, person, object, or ceremony, which has a reality and purpose in biblical history, but which also by divine design foreshadows something yet to be revealed. Okay, so as we look at this, we're going to realize that um, a type has a correspondence in the New Testament as we're going to go through the, the requirements that uh, Dr. Zook gives, and we'll see how important each one of them is. And then um, from Paul Lee Tan, Dr. Tan, that's a, that's a great book on interpreting prophecy. It's really good. Typological interpretation, however, is not a different method of interpretation. Again, we can be consistent. In the interpretation of types, what is interpreted arises from the text and is shown to have a higher application of the same sense of that text. The historical reality and existence of the type is never denied. Typological interpretation is therefore the unfolding of the literal base of the type, not the allegorization of that which is typified. In other words, it's there in the text. You don't have to impose an allegorical or a spiritualized um, interpretation on it from the outside. You can, you can exegete it, you can draw out from it, and it's obvious what it actually is, but it's, there's a reality to it, in other words. Okay? Um, down there, D, messianic prophecies are often in the form of types, and he gives several examples there. Well, let's look at these six qualifications, and this is just right out of the reading. Um, types and symbols, qualifications for type. First of all, there has to be resemblance, similarity, or correspondence to New Test to a New Testament antitype. Um, one of the differences between a type and a symbol, as we're going to see, is there is a there is a time issue with a uh, with a type antitype relationship. It's almost like a prophecy fulfilled. Old Testament type, New Testament antitype, and second. There's an obvious historical reality in the Old Testament context. In other words, it's not hidden. You don't have to impose an outside meaning onto that word or that, that type. And it predicts or foreshadows its New Testament antitype. Again, there's that uh, predictive or foreshadowing issue. If, there, if it's a type, it's going to have an antitype that will fulfill it. And another feature of it is, the antitype is always greater than its type. That's why you'll see in this the term heightening, heightening. Okay, the the tabernacle in the wilderness. It was a real tabernacle, real thing in history. They made it and they built it and they would haul it around and set it up, take it down, and it was a real thing. But that was the the that's the type. The antitype is Christ and uh, what he accomplished. So it has a reality in history. You don't need to impose meaning on it from the outside, um, but it has a fulfillment in the New Testament, 
And But the fulfillment is always a greater reality than the type itself. That's what he means by heightening. Okay, And uh, also, there's an evident, evident divine design. Clearly, God built this into the Word of God and built it into history so that these things could take place and there would be a, a future actual fulfillment with a real New Testament anti-type. And then, he's real big on number six here, a clear New Testament anti-type. Uh, he, he really develops that really well. That's really key because if you don't have that, you just have kicked the door open for just about anything anybody can imagine. Okay? The anti-type has to be clear. The, the, type, the type can't be... The type is not understood until the anti-type shows up in history. I think that's what he's getting at. There has, there's a resemblance, but there, you, don't know, you don't know it's there until you see the anti-type appear. That's how I would take it. Yeah, I know. Our, our typical use of anti is against. The word actually, um, as it's being used here, um, means in the place of. Um, it could be, you know, and I, yeah, I mean, even in uh, even in Scripture, Second Corinthians five fourteen, one for all died, therefore all died. The little word, little preposition, who pair. If you do a if you do a word study, an historical word study on that, you they know that the word used to be anti, and prior to Koine Greek. And then anti gave way to huper. So one for all died instead of one anti died. Anti is still used in the Bible, antichrist. And so we think anti or anti against, and antichrist is against, but his primary way of being against Christ will be he will, he will displace him. He will be in the place of. So huper became, in its usage, the word that's used for substitute. You mean antichrist? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the real... Exactly. So, yeah, I, I understand that uh, you got to kind of look at how he's using that word in the context, I think, probably. So, I don't think the against part of it's there as part of it. Okay, so, but that, he makes a real point in the reading um, how important that last part is, because if that's not there, people tend to load... Uh, all kinds of things uh, with the definition of being a type anti-type. That's a type of Christ. That's a type of Christ. I can remember getting hold of some books early on in my walk with the Lord, and one of them had to do with the tabernacle. That's a, that's one that a lot of books have been written about the tabernacle, and and I because I wanted to learn about the tabernacle, so I got a hold of this book, and and it I was going along pretty good when the tabernacle sort of by itself was a picture of the sacrifice of Christ. But then he began to dismantle every part and piece of this thing. The colors meant this of Christ, and this meant that of Christ. Even down to, they, I guess, you know, it had a fence around it, kind of a big curtain kind of fence, held up by boards. The boards had uh, tenons, and the tenons fit into a, uh, I think they were silver blocks with a mortise. Well, I had to have something hold up the boards, right? But he saw, he saw Christ in that block somehow that was holding up that board that was holding up the fence. He lost me. He lost me there, right? And in other words, you can't, you have to ask the question, how do you know? How do you know? How do you know? 
Where, where do you get that? And if it isn't clearly stated, you can't call it a type. That's his point. Because you can, you can have a list miles long of things that are supposedly types of Christ uh, for all different kinds of reasons. So there has to be some kind of control on it. And that's, that's I think, his major point there as far as that sixth, sixth one. Got to be a clear antitype. It could be an illustration. Um, I personally always thought that uh, Joseph was a type of Christ. Um, all that's said about him, it's never once said that he sinned uh, and all the, the ways he typifies Christ. But uh, according to this criteria, Joseph is not a type of Christ. He is an illustration. Okay, And it doesn't, it doesn't diminish his, his person or his testimony in any way or how he's used in Scripture. It just simply means that as we look at it, we can't call it a type according to this definition. Okay, anything else? Probably because of history and the way that the Word of God has been handled, you know, and it is handled a lot. Um, when you look at how how things have just gotten out of hand as far as, well, that book is a good, a good uh, illustration, I think. I mean, there are people that see Jesus in, in everything in Scripture. In fact, it's a theological issue, you know, and Remember we talked about Luke chapter 24 and how that passage is used by people. And this, the last class we have is going to be the, the uh, use of the New Testament, the use of the Old Testament in the New. That's a gigantic theological issue right now. That's a, it's a theological battleground. And um, to read the New Testament back into the Old Testament is very common. But what that does is you, you basically destroy progressive revelation because you're not letting the Bible unfold, you're not interpreting it as it naturally unfolds, and so, but you're you're willing to say this is that, but you go back and look at the Old Testament passage, and you can't find that in that Old Testament passage. You've read it back into it. So a lot of it is how we handle the Word of God on a regular basis. Um, I think that's one of the main things. Part of what we're doing is learning to be, you know better handlers of Scripture, and to be able to recognize it when we see mishandling of the Word of God. So maybe that's my best answer. I'm not trying to answer for him, but I think uh, uh, that's probably one of the main things is there's, there's a lot of abuse of Scripture out there. And if we can not do that, I think it's uh, I think it's going to be a good thing for us. So we have to handle the Word of God in the right way. We have to be uh, you know faithful, faithful to what Scripture is and not uh, not get off into ways that uh, that are not justified by, by the Word of God. Well, we need to let it say what it says, not what we want it to say. Yeah, and that is really easy to do. It's a danger. Um, it can be, there's all, we, we're not going to get into it too much because I want to kind of, there's not enough time and space to get into all the aberrations that are out there, but there's a whole lot of aberrational ways. Everything from the cults to liberalism to all different kinds of things. And for the most part, almost every single one of them is how do you handle the Word of God? It's hermeneutics. You wind up at a certain place because of the pathway you take. And the pathway of hermeneutics puts you in a certain spot. The difference in, between theological positions is a result of hermeneutics in virtually every single, every single case. And there's all different kinds of hermeneutics. You know, there's uh, How about employment? That's a hermeneutic. Money is a hermeneutic. There's lots of ways you can demonstrate that. So, I would say you're not reading it back into it. You're, you're reading the result of what is in the Old Testament. 
And that result, if, if the tabernacle is a type of Christ, then you know that when, when you see Christ and His ministry. And it's there for a reason so that you can, you can see that illustration of what He did, the blood sacrifice, the, the tabernacle. Um, the tabernacle also was uh, designed to illustrate the narrowing of the way to God. Um, the outer court separates the Jews from the Gentiles. The inner court separates the Levites from the non-Levites. The first room separates the priests from the Levites. Not every Levite was a priest. And then that inner holy of holies, there's only one guy that can go in there, and that was the high priest. So you have this narrowing access to God pictured in the tabernacle. And Jesus is the one way to God. Right? That's how I would look at it. Does that answer your question? I don't it, it's not reading the New Testament back into the old. If you do that, then you're gonna start with the New Testament and you don't know where you're gonna wind up. You have to you have to force that on the Old Testament. But if you go to the Old Testament, if you ask that person who does that, well show me that in the Old Testament, they can't do it because it's not there. They have to impose it on the Old Testament. It's more than an illustration. Illustrations aren't gonna have are not gonna have a uh a timeline fulfillment like that. These are fulfilled in time at a certain point in time. Yeah, that's number six. That's the key one. And it's a particular kind of illustration, I think. And I think he even makes that saying there. Yes, it is an illustration, but it's a it's a particular kind that has a fulfillment in time. It's designed by God. And um, I think he also mentions in there, an illustration is what you draw out of the text. Type is what God puts in there. He designed that. That's that point about that it has divine design. Okay, You wouldn't know what it was an illustration of. Um, same thing, you, that's where we talked about progressive revelation. You know, What did they know? When did they know it? And there are theological systems that say, well, they knew everything we know. Well, how? And, but you say, show me that in, in the Old Testament, and they can't do that. They, had a, they, they were limited by what they knew when they knew it. Uh, that's why in that chap that passage in Luke 24, Jesus said, "You were slow to believe all that the prophets had said." What did they believe? There's two issues there. He talks about he talks about the suffering and the glory. Okay, they got the glory part. They were looking for the kingdom big time, but what they couldn't see because they were refusing to see it or whatever was this, the suffering part. They they were looking for that kingdom as every godly New Te- Old Testament saint was looking for. Read through Luke chapter 1. Luke presents a group of people as witnesses. And every single one of those people, Zechariah, his wife Elizabeth, Mary, Joseph, and so on, every single one of them, he certifies them in two ways. He certifies their Jewishness, and he certifies their godliness. These are pious Old Testament Jews. And all those people all the way through were anticipating the kingdom. They had a messianic expectation and uh, and and even his disciples, remember the remember the, the two on the road to Emmaus. We were hoping this was the one that would restore Israel. You know, what did they see? They saw they were looking for that kingdom, but he said, "Slow to believe all." He didn't say you don't know anything. He just said you're just slow to pick up that second point. And he had to go to the cross. And they didn't. They weren't seeing that. They were looking for the for the glorious kingdom. So progressive revelation is is really important to see. You can't you can't override it to try to to try to say well these guys 
had more information than they really had. Okay, so there's literal method and types. And then, how about symbols? Um, From your notes there, it's a sign, shape, or object that is used to represent something else. That's just a basic secular definition. Um, Again, from uh, Pauli Tan, Dr. Tan, a symbol is a representative and graphic delineation of an actual event, truth, or object. Again, that's what it has in common with a type. The thing that is depicted is not the real thing, but conveys a representative meaning. And again, from the reading, page 185, symbols and types are both representative of something else, However, a type represents something to come. In other words, it looks ahead, but a symbol has no time reference. A type is fulfilled at a specific time by its antitype. And so, how do you interpret that? Well, we need to, first of all, and this again, this comes right out of the reading, observe the object, which is the symbol. Observe the referent, that is what the symbol refers to. And then observe the meaning, the resemblance between the symbol and the referent. And then um, from a pretty good book by uh, Professor A. Berkeley Mickelson, the connection between the literal object and the lesson it teaches becomes clearer when we learn what the one who used the symbol meant to convey by it. Again, back to that authorial intent thing. Symbols have a self-authenticating credibility when the import is known. As long as the one who puts forth a symbol explains it, the interpreter faces no great difficulty. Okay? And here's the Apostle Paul using a symbol. Galatians 6.14 But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's The cross was a real thing in history, but he's, he's using it symbolically, what it meant to him. Now, back in that day, the cross was an instrument of brutal execution, right? So it seems kind of strange. Why would you do that? Well, he understands the theological and the personal import of what the cross meant to him. And that's how he's using it. He boasted in the cross of Christ because he understood what it symbolized. It's connection to the person and work of Jesus Christ and how it transformed his relationship to the world. That's what the, that's what the disciples couldn't see. They were looking for the kingdom and even jockeying for position, you know, getting their mother to go and say, hey, put us at your right hand, you know, come on. Because they were thinking this is a political kingdom and, and uh, he's the king, obviously. But what they couldn't see was the cross. Um, I think it can be. He talks about numbers. Um it can be a symbol, and can all, numbers can be symbols, but also numbers can can represent a real a real number. Um, you know, seven lampstands. Seven is a number of perfection, but there were seven lampstands, so it can, they can do both. And for sure, Jesus fasted forty days and forty nights. Um, I think, and and and. The, the caution is to see a single, in the, in the context where it's used, to see a single meaning or a single issue, but don't import a bunch of stuff on that. We're going to talk about that. That's, that's the last thing we're going to talk about. Um, some hermeneutical pitfalls, right? There's bigger speech. 
So, but uh, yeah, numbers can numbers can do both. But the context is really critical to see how it's being used by the writer, where and when he's using it. Page thirty-five. Some hermeneutical pitfalls. I think this these are good. They're good advice for when you're taking these things and trying to figure out, you know, what are the limitations and what what do I do, what do I don't do. Don't assign the wrong characteristic of the symbol to the referent. Psalm 19, my rock and my redeemer. Don't take that too far, you know. Is God just sharp-edged and really hard to get along with or something like that, you know. People do those types of things with symbols. There is generally just a single point of reference that you're supposed to think about. Um, don't assign all the characteristics of the symbol to the referent. That's another one. You know, you can. If if this is that, then all of those things are true of that. But that's not the way to approach it. Also, know that one referent may be depicted by several symbols, and then a prophecy may contain symbols, but not everything in a prophecy is symbolic. Prophecy might have a prophecy about uh, uh, something that's going to actually happen in the future. You know, one army coming against another army. But in in that same narrative, there might be a symbolic reference of some kind. Well, you have a combination of a symbol, but there is a reality to be considered as well in that. And here's the one that hopefully may, may answer that question. Know that numbers may have both literal and symbolic meaning. It can be both. I know we mentioned um, <clears throat> Dr. Thomas, Dr. Robert Thomas, who wrote a very excellent two-part two commentary on the book of Revelation. He believes that every single number in Revelation can be taken literally. And I agree. They can be. You don't, have to, you don't have to symbolize or spiritualize away numbers just because they're in a book that people says is highly symbolic. Well, it is. At least 96% of the symbols that are given in Scripture are either explained in the context or someplace else in the, in the Scriptures. John in Revelation is assuming his readers understand the Old Testament. Okay, And so many of those symbols are explained in the Old Testament. And there's a very consistent use of symbols cover to cover in Scripture. Part of the problem with people who have a tr trouble with the book of Revelation is they don't know the Old Testament, quite simply. Okay? He's assuming the knowledge of his readers. And then guard against reading symbolism into names unless warranted by the context. Again, context is so critical. Guard against reading symbolism into colors unless warranted by the context. That was I ran into that with the book on the tabernacle. Purple, blue, you know, all kinds of things. Don't interpret a symbol with another symbol. Wait to find the literal meaning. And then emblematic actions and ordinances should be thoroughly studied in all contexts. It, make sure that they, if they occur in another context, that you see how they're being used in another context. And then types, symbols, and parables should not be used to formulate doctrine, only illustrate it. It's very dangerous if you use a symbol or a type to create a doctrine, you know, or a, a movement of some kind. Follow me. We're going to be this group of people, you know. Where'd you get that? Well, I got it from this uh, 
symbol here from the Bible. It's not, not too good. And he mentions this in the reading, seek just one point of similarity. Okay? And uh, when a symbol is not a symbol, when the symbol involves things that are possible, one of the more famous ones, point of contention, 1,000 years in Revelation 20. Nothing in the context, text or context, tells you that that cannot be taken as a literal number. Nothing at all. In fact, grammatically it should be. It's uh, in the accusative case, and the grammarians call that an accusative of extent of time. If it were in the uh, genitive case, you would understand it to be during that period of time. If it was in the uh, dative case, case of the indirect object, you could understand it to mean at a point in time. But Satan is bound for 1,000 years. Same thing is true in Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of Christ. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Both those words are in the accusative case. That's an extent of time. If it was in the genitive case, you might understand it to be he fasted during 40 days and 40 nights. There's a big difference between fasting during 40 days and 40 nights and fasting for 40 days. If it was in the um, the dative case, you would it would be mean he fasted at a point in time during 40 days and 40 nights. Okay, so the grammar counts, and the grammar tells you that that is an accusative of extent of time. He wasn't uh, bound for a while, and then he got loose for a while, and he's running around. No, he was bound and thrown in the pit and sealed for 1,000 years. Okay, so that's just how you would approach that. And when details superfluous to the symbol are given, for example, Ezekiel's temple, nine chapters of details about a temple, and people still say, well, that's, that's not a real temple. That's a picture of the church. Really? It says nothing about the church in Ezekiel 40 through 48. Um, all those details tell you this is a real temple at a real point in time. When the symbol separates from itself, 24 elders in Revelation 7, um, that type of thing. So when a symbol is not a symbol, and the flip side can be true too, you can, you can uh, not take something symbolically when it really is intended to be that way, and, uh, or you can impose symbolism on something when it's intended by God and the author to be an actual event or a period of time or something like that. Okay? Also, the the word, the 1,000 years, kiliate, occurs six times in that one passage in Revelation 20. Symbols, repetition, if it means anything, okay, is not generally used symbolically like that. Okay, any other questions or thoughts you might have? A couple of the things where there, that have been abused, and you can think of them too, um, the sacraments, okay? The sacraments, uh, the bread and the wine, historically, uh, what are they? they? They are symbolic of something. And even baptism. So those historically have been, been loaded up with more meaning than there actually should be, uh, have given to them in certain denominations and historically church settings and so on. Those are uh, pictures, they're symbols of, of something. Okay, any thoughts or questions you guys might have on any of these? Yeah, Simon. Did you look at the key? I did. It says both, illustration and type, and the key. Yeah, and earlier he said it wasn't. 
I know. I noticed that myself. And, and I'm not sure what his thinking is on that. Um, yeah, I, I, it's, some of this is going to depend on who you, he's very conservative. He's really on the conservative spectrum of this thing. And I think it's because he has seen the abuse of it and it tends to, he tends to make you conservative and not want to do that or not want to teach it that way. And um, I think that's part of, part of what's going on here. I mean, I had him for a professor, and he was very conservative in all these areas. He does, he's really nervous about abusing the Word of God or not having controls and restraints on what people say the Bible says. And so, um, yeah, that would be the, that one caught my eye as well. The brass serpent being lifted up in the wilderness is a type of Christ being crucified, an illustration or a type. Um, I think there's something else going on there too. When you look at where that's used and how it's used in John chapter 3, I'm convinced that part of what's going on in the New Testament, major theme in the New Testament, is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and the movement of the gospel from Jew to Gentile. So if you go back and you look at the setting of that first issue with the serpent being put on the pole, if you got bit by a poisonous snake and you looked at that, you'd live, right? Who was that for? That wasn't for the Canaanites. That was just for the Israelites. But when Jesus gets, when he uses that, he's talking to Nicodemus, a Pharisee, who would have thought only the, salvation is only for the Jews. But Jesus in that passage in John 3 says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself, that whosoever believes. Now, I know in our typical American evangelicalism, we, we think whosoever, all men, all men without exception. I think in the context, it's all men without distinction, Jew-Gentile. Same thing, the famous John 3.16, for God so loved the world. World without exception or world without distinction? In the context, and if you can even go back and demonstrate Isaiah, and Isaiah, his use of the word to the nations or to the world, and uh, that's an extension of that. So it's a movement of the gospel from Jew to Gentile, and I think that has to be included in that. Same thing with, with John the Baptist when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John one twenty nine. Well, you go back and look at, the, look at the first Passover. Who was it for? That was for the Israelites. Didn't help the Egyptians. And when they moved out into the wilderness and did, did that yearly, it was, it was not for the Canaanites and the people in the land. It was strictly for the Jews. But at that point in time, then you had the movement of the gospel from Jew to Gentile, and that's thematic in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts, Luke and the book of Acts. So I think that's part of that as well. So I don't think so. I mean, I don't know if, 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 they, would have, if they would have done that, but they didn't. They weren't told to do that. It was confined to the, to the Israelites. Did, did you want to pick out another one of those, Simon? Illustration. He's an illustration of it, not a type, because I'm guessing it's not clearly mentioned that he is a type. Sure. Exactly. And and the illustration is what you observe in the text. You can see it. It's like Joseph, obviously an illustration. You know, betrayed by his closest people, put down a hole in the ground, brought out, you know, sold, and all the things he went through. Never sinned. Always trusting God, you know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, that type of thing. Clearly, an illustration of Christ and his attitude toward people, but there's not a New Testament 
confirmation that this is a type. That's not there. I know it sounds kind of narrow and, and constraining, but if that if that control is not there, people have gone all over the place with this stuff. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.